Welcome to our study of James. We're in chapter two to date, and uh, hope that you've got your Bibles handy or, or up on your iPad or something, but here we go. As we've told you, we're gonna try to keep these uh, rather shorter than a normal Bible class, which would run 45 minutes or more. And we're going to try to populate this every week. But as we go through these studies of these epistles, in the order they were written, not in the order the events occurred, but in the order they were written, we're gonna try really hard to do a good study, but not kill you with one chapter a week. We're gonna do that for some books like James, but there are other books that have quite a few chapters and we're gonna ask you to read ahead because that's what a Bible study is, isn't it? There, there, are, there are some things incumbent upon the student and that would be reading ahead, any version you choose. James chapter two uh, has two discrete units in it dealing with different issues. Please remember, James was the brother of Christ. He was um, the spokesman in Acts chapter 15 at that great council of the church in Jerusalem. I always find that fascinating. One of these days we're just gonna have to talk about that. Uh, and he, he is very much born and bred and remained a Jew, even though he absolutely believed that Jesus was the Christ. He wrote this book and I, it is just the most Jewish book we've got, really. You could, you could argue about Matthew and Hebrews, but this is, it's just an amazing book. I love it. It's difficult uh, to apply, but it's not very difficult to understand. And that, that, that gives us that, that love eh, relationship with it. The first section is on favoritism. We tend to like the things we like, and we can sometimes like people because they make us feel better by their presence or because we feel powerful that we have known them. Uh, I, sitting around tables in my life, I've sat with people who said they met this person. And it, it could be a sports uh, star. It could be somebody from Hollywood or somebody in government. And, and there's a little, little bit of you know, cachet of, of importance there. And nothing wrong with that. You know, we, we're always gonna be interested in interesting people and celebrity type things. So, okay, but what happens, James says, if a man comes into your assembly who doesn't have the gold ring, the fine clothes, but he's, he's a poor man, he's filthy clothes. Now he has nothing he can do for you. There is no utility potential, as we would say in the psychological world. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of teens make friends out of utility potential. To be fair, there's another big section. They make friends because if somebody's willing to be friends with them, that gives them meaning and a community. So that's huge but also utility potential. What can I get out of this relationship? Uh, is it going to get me into certain parties, into certain sports? Is it going to get me looked at in a different way? And all of this is done subconsciously. But as we get older, James calls us out and he says, let's not grade people by their utility potential. Here's a rich guy. He could help us pay off the building. Here's, here's a, a, you know, a set of beautiful people off of television that have walked into our, our, our church. Now you might be thinking, well, that'll never happen. In the Nashville area, it happens. Do you treat them any different than you do the 
kind of smelly person that comes in who doesn't really fit with the decor of the building. Uh, you know, these things are tragic. But if we deny that they occur, and if we deny that they happen in our hearts as well, far more often than we like to admit, then we'll never get better. And James even says, listen guys, it's not the poor people that are hurting you. It's the rich people that are dragging you into court, demanding more from you, get, getting in your way. And, and there are some aspects of that which are certainly true still in our lives today. That we have, um, our government does not have to follow the same rules as the rest of us. And in fact, there are a whole lot of rules that Congress and um, the, uh, the Senate don't have to follow, that you and I absolutely do. I work a great deal with police officers, and we've been watching some um, some shows on the telly. Uh, everybody has, again, I think, during the COVID year. And my my wife would look over at me and goes, "Is that is that legal?" By far, the answer is no. Uh, most of these shows are ridiculous, but there is something which has really shocked her, and that is, the police can lie to you all day long about anything and it's okay. But if you lie to them, it isn't. They they will lie, in fact, to try to, you know, they'll say, you know, your wife's in the next room, she's already confessed, she said you did it. When none of that's true. But if you were to say something that's untrue, then you're in trouble. And he's James is just saying, let's not play games with the powerful so that they'll be nice to us. Let's treat everybody without favoritism. And then he calls something the royal law. We've heard the golden rule, but he says, remember the, keep the royal law found in scripture. What is that? Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you do that, you're doing right. Which by the way, is a very interesting thing to say. As we said last week, uh, there are churches that would not have hired James. Uh, in fact, it's hard to find any that would have if they said, all right, what is your description of perfect, pure, and undefiled religion? And he says, take care of the left out, you know, the orphans, the widows, and try not to let the world get you dirty. People go, no, 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 what's your stance on marriage, divorce, and remarriage? What's your stance on music and instruments in a church? What's your stance on the kind of music God likes? Or what's your stance on the pattern? And James just goes, just take care of the orphans and widows and keep unspotted from the world. And here he says, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Don't we need more details? Evidently not. Huh. But he does say if you show favoritism, then you're convicted by the law. So we really got to work on that, don't we? There are some of you perhaps who really don't need to work on this, but at least me and I think in my circle of friends, we really do. It's something we have to remind ourselves of. Um, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom in verse 12, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Once again, almost any church that I have ever met and worked with, whenever they're looking for a minister, or maybe I was their minister, um, 
would not have hired somebody who says, you know something? We have to make sure that everything we say and do leads to freedom. And that if there's ever a question, we fall on the mercy side, not the judgment side. Has your mind blown up yet? Because what is, what, how are we known in the world as Christians? Isn't it by our judgment? And sometimes by our lack of judgment? Oh yes, I know we're humans, but we need to remember this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We had a, a situation once at a church where I was and the elders called me in and we were all talking about this particular person and what needs to happen. And does any, we don't know what needs to happen. How do we decide what needs to happen? You don't know, need to know any of the details. They, they asked me my opinion and my opinion was to offer, um, show mercy, refuse to uh, demand things from them, tell them we love them. And the elders are very, very respectful of my opinion, even though they, they weren't all in tune with it, but they were still just good people. And one of them said, well, Patrick, um, can you tell me why you chose that? And I said, absolutely. And it is entirely self-centered and self-serving. If ever there is a question between mercy and judgment, the Bible tells me through James, the brother of Christ, to choose mercy. I want to rather have mercy on someone who does not deserve it than to judge someone who should not be judged because I want that to be my record when I get up to heaven. James has had a big impact on me and he's not done here at all. He says, what good is it, brothers? Oh, this made, made Martin Luther, the great German reformer, so angry. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, why did Martin Luther hate the book of James? In fact, he called it an epistle of straw. By the way, later in life, he kind of came around to it, but he was very upset. And the reason was he was still bruised all over. Serving a church that was works, 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 and you got to buy this to cover this, and you got to buy that to cover that, and you'd better be at church a certain number of times, and you'd better say a certain number of novenas and, and Hail Marys. You, you got constant, or there's no, there's no forgiveness. All of these acts were sacraments to, to get the grace of God. You had to do all of these works. But whenever he was reading scripture, he came upon the salvation by grace. And it was just like, ooh, it was wonderful. And I'm so glad he did. But then, as he's doing his translation of scripture and doing a study, and, and, and Martin Luther's German Bible was absolutely as influential in German-speaking countries as King James' version was in the English-speaking. It was quite the triumph. Um, he, uh, he, he finds James. He's coasting along, grace, 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 grace. And then he comes to this section. Someone will say, I, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. 
and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. This is change. He is not, he's not going to let you go with warming a pew. Are you saved by deeds? No, not yours. You're saved by Jesus's deeds. But then what is going on here? It is rather like love. I love my wife dearly. But if that's all I said, and I never followed it up with action, what good is that to her? I do not do deeds so that I can be married. I'm married so I do things like take care of my wife, help her in any way she needs, not only around the house, but with her, her profession, her education, whatever she wants, um, her recreation. Love requires deeds. And if you love Christ, he's saying, where's the evidence that you do? And that's a pretty damning indictment. They've done studies and I don't know what all the numbers are. Not my field. They've done studies in, in areas that are very church intensive, like Nashville. Um, and there are other areas like that. You know, Dallas is like that and Fort Worth is like that. But then there are certain areas that are really intensive with a particular religion. Let's say Puerto Rico, San Juan Puerto Rico and the Catholics. Let's say Nashville and the Churches of Christ. Let's say Indianapolis and the Independent Christian Church. You get the point, all right? I don't want to do this with all the denominations. And they have found, it, if you take a look at the saturation of people who say they are Christians, or if you go to the kind of homelands of different religious groups, they still have the same amount or near enough of divorces, domestic violence, uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, suicides, as areas that aren't their gathering areas, which means Christians aren't changing the nation's story or their own community story, as God has called us to do. Now, why is that? I think a lot of it has to do with our trying to find a way to worship right, but also that consumer thing. That it's gotta make me feel better. I gotta like being at this church. And so there's that, there's that clash. You know, I wanna to get to a church that'll get me to God and get me saved, but I also want a church that, that makes me happy. And so you can do a consumeristic, you know, what's in it for me, that utility potential. Uh, you can do that with churches and, and people always do. We, we always do, and, and it'd be wrong to deny that. We just need to keep it under control. Now, we go to that church, and we give. Um, we don't tithe, my goodness, that'd be a lot of money. Uh, maybe 2%, you know, uh, 3% if we get a bonus, that sort of thing. But you know, we got a mortgage, we got debt, we got credit cards. That's the way most people are doing. So they go to church and rather than standing on the promises, they're sitting on the premises and then they spend the rest of their week just being a nice citizen, which I'm glad, but there's more to our faith than that. We are to be salt. We are to be light. We're to be a city on a hell. And James is saying, don't just tell me, 
but I believe in Christ. Show me evidence. Show me that you are. Now, I don't think James was saying, you prove it to me. He's just saying, no, if you are a Christian, things will change. And you're going to take actions that you normally wouldn't take. You're going to do things you normally don't do. You're going to give. You're going to give of yourself, of your time, and yes, of your money in ways that the world doesn't really understand. But you're going to do it because that's what we do. Not so that I can be a Christian and be saved. I do all of that because I am a Christian and I am saved. So get that right. I don't do what I do to be a Christian. I'm a Christian. And so I do these things. It's because Christ's love compels us, as uh, Paul would say. Well, here, he even gives Abraham as an example. But then he, he says in verse 23, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Quoting there out of Genesis 15. Um, it is, um, do you understand what that means? He believed God. Therefore, he was saved and he was credited with righteousness. Not his, God's. Abraham mistreated a servant slave given to him repeatedly. It would probably what we would call today rape. Abandonment of her and a child. There were a lot of awful things in Abraham's life. Abraham, we, and we can make excuses for him if you want to, but I'd rather you didn't. I'd rather instead that we pull back and say, even Abraham was credited as righteousness because of his faith. Great. But that didn't happen in Ur of the Chaldees. It happened as he was moving because his faith required him to keep moving until he received the promise. So you and I need to keep moving. We're saved. We get, our faith saves us, but move. In fact, in verse 24, he's, uh, James says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. There's always been a faith alone movement since Martin Luther, at least, solo fide. Um, and the problem is the only place in scripture that actually has the phrase faith alone says no. But that doesn't mean that faith plus work saves us. I know this is complex, but it's really important. Go back up. If you love your neighbor as yourself, this is back in verse eight, you are doing right, doing right. Love is active. Faith is active. Let's see if I can give an illustration. Let's say I'm, I'm sitting at our sound, sound stage at our safe harbor on Sunday and we're tuning up, we're getting ready to go and, and man, Sundays are my favorite days. And then a state trooper walks in and he goes, um, Patrick, uh, Misha, Cammie, all of you guys, we've received a credible report that there's a bomb alert. Uh, we think it might be in this house. It might be in a neighbor's house, but we think it's gonna go off in about 15 minutes and we don't have time to find it. We need you to get out of here. If I believe that officer, what happens next? Do I sit there going, oh yeah, I'll believe you. 
I believe you. You're a trustworthy individual there, state trooper, because I support him. I, I like him. So yeah, yeah, sure, fine. No, I have faith and I would be directing, I hope I'd be directing everybody else out rather than doing a George Costanza and just going, ah, and, and me getting out. But um, let's not test that. What happened? My faith was revealed by what I did. Now let's say we get a block away and boom. Could I say my faith saved me? Absolutely. Did my work save me? Only in that they were a result of my faith. Works alone certainly didn't. Works didn't make me more saved. And the works wouldn't have happened if I hadn't believed. Does that help? I hope it helps. By the way, you, if you're ready for this, James, once again, this will be the third time in this chapter that he goes after anybody who wants perfectionism and worship perfectionism and doctrine, perfectionism and practice, or patternism, where you have to do a certain pattern, like God has worship as a magic act, that if you do it just right, salvation comes out of the hat. No, he did it whenever he says, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're doing it right, you're doing right, without any other, but what about other things we're supposed to be doing? And here, about just being faithful, and look what it did for Abraham to have faith. Even of the mess that he was, it was considered to him as righteousness. And then, let's let the ladies have a turn. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. What a chapter. But I would like for you, this is the third time now, are you ready? What is missing in his summation of Rahab? It's always important to not only see the words, but see the spaces. What was not said? It wasn't said anything about repentance for being a prostitute. There's nothing in here that indicates that she reformed and said, I have sinned, let me run to the Jewish people and follow their God. We know the story, or I hope you know the story. Um, the spies came in, uh, she did shelter them. She lied to the guards and said, no, nope, no spies here. And then after all of this, uh, when Jericho fell, she did go with the Jews. Now, the first time we see her, she's camped outside the camp because she's not a Jew, that was a rule. But the second time we see her, she's married to a guy named Solomona, a Jew. Third time we see her, she's in a direct lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter one. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And here, because she believed the spies, and she acted upon it, God said, that belief, we're considering that righteous. And there was never any time in here we find anybody taking Rahab to task for the life that she had had before. No, her faith and God's grace in giving us uh, and considering us righteous because of faith 
wipe the slate. Were you ready for that? I'm not sure I was, but there it is. God bless you. We'll see you next week.